Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. So when we first began our drive through Romans, we asked the question, uh, what in the world is God doing today? Do you remember that? What in the world is God up to today? What's He doing? Uh, How's He working in our world? And it's an important question that we want to ask, and it's an important question that the Apostle Paul is answering through the book of Romans as he clearly and carefully lays out God's redemptive plan through the work of Jesus Christ. I mean, he's explaining what God is doing in the world and in people's lives. And uh, that the, the redemptive plan we're talking about is, we can sum it up in the gospel, right? We're talking about Christ's death and burial and resurrection and what God is doing through it and what it means for our lives and for the world. And so Paul's revealing all of that, okay? Uh, Jesus, now he reveals, changes everything. He changes everything. We talked about last week how Adam brought sin and death and condemnation into the world, but Jesus has the power to change that. He actually brings grace and spiritual life and righteousness to us through faith in Him. And so uh, that's what we're going to talk about today is how Jesus has the power to change not just our position before God. We've spent most of our time talking about that in Romans, uh, how Jesus changes our status before God, taking us from enemies to being friends with God, how we're reconciled with God through faith in Him. But now we're going to start to talk about how Jesus has the power to change our hearts. He has the power to change our lives, the way that we operate. He gives us new power, new spiritual life, a new walk. I mean, the the direction of our lives, the decisions that we make start to change because of what He has done for us. So we're going to move now uh, from the talk about justification to sanctification. So I have a a slide up here for us that kind of walks us through that. In chapters 1 through 5... Paul has mostly explained how to be saved or how to be justified through faith in Christ. So we understand that we can't be righteous on our own. We have to look to Jesus and His work on the cross to be justified. We need His perfect righteousness, right? However, from that point on, from the time that we get saved, from the time that we come to faith in Christ, right, we're we're born again through faith in Him, we now enter into a new spiritual realm. And we begin a new lifelong journey of life change, learning to become more and more like Jesus, our Savior. And I would actually submit that that's the chief responsibility of the Christian. It's to grow in Christ-likeness. 
You know, as we enter into chapter 6 through 8 now, working our way through this book, that's the side of the Christian life that is our focus. We're not so much now talking about salvation, but we're talking about sanctification, this progressive uh, becoming more and more like Jesus, right? The shape of our daily walk, how we live, how he gives us new life, new power under grace instead of law, right? How we, he, be, he becomes our master, sin's no longer our master, righteousness is our master, Christ is our allegiance. And so again, moving from justification to sanctification, and those are some stained glass words, aren't they? Big, long, stained glass words that that can confuse us, but justification is this one-time act of God where He declares us righteous. He justifies us. He, he cleanses us from our sin, and he, it's, that, it's that moment right there that you see there um, where we're, we come to faith in Christ. We're regenerated. We're now justified before God. We have God's righteousness. So we have a perfect standing up there with God. However, from that moment, we now begin this pro, what's called progressive sanctification, where it's these the ups and downs of life, right? <laughs> Don't you feel that way sometimes? The ups and downs of life that make you more and more like Him. It's a lifelong journey and process. So, in justification, we could say He declares us righteous. In sanctification, He is making us righteous. Uh, he loves us enough to save us as we are, but He loves us too much to leave us the way that we are. And uh, when it comes to progressive sanctification, a Christian walk, I can hardly think of a more important passage than this one to be in this morning. Part of that just has to do with the nature of the book of Romans and how Paul is clearly and carefully laying out what God's doing, what He's done. It's just very clear, very systematic before us. And this is a critical passage for us to understand if we want to have victory in the battle with sin in our lives. Uh, I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you struggle with sin? <laughs> okay? Every single one of us. And if, you, and, if, and if you don't, well, again, you need to come talk to me. I'll share the gospel with you. Right? You need to see sin for the first time maybe in your life. But... Um, maybe you've wished, right, that you could get victory over a certain sin in your life. You wish that you could change. Uh, there's a certain besetting sin that you struggle with, a habit you wish you could break, an addiction you wish you could quit, a virtue maybe you wish you had, like self-control or love or joy, okay, peace, patience, kindness. There's a lot of virtues in Christ. But um, I think there's a lot of Christians walking around today who are walking around a lot like Eeyore. You guys know who Eeyore is? Is there anybody else named Eeyore other than that mopey donkey off of Winnie the Pooh? And you, you know Eeyore, right? He just walks around, head down, moping around, just living a life that's just defeated and fearful. And I think a lot of Christians today walk around like Eeyore, thinking that this is it. This is as good as it's going to get. You know, and I'm just never going to get victory over this sin. Is that how he talks? It's been a long time since I've watched Winnie the Pooh, to be honest. But many Christians, I think, have settled and, and said to themselves, that's as good as it gets. And they kind of have checked out in the Christian life. 
and have started to just become complacent or even passive about the sin in their lives because they just don't think they're going to get victory over it. But Paul's here to tell us this morning that we can have victory over the sin in our lives, that we have been freed from sin, not only its penalty and justification, but also its power in our lives. We can have some serious victory over the sin in our lives. And here's why this is important. Because sin is destructive, is it not? Sin is cute for a while. It's fun and it's cute. You know, you uh, think it's just this fun and easy thing going, right? And you live the way you want. And I'm, you think that it's just, you're just going to be this free bird doing whatever you want the way you want until the consequences of sin start to enter your lives. And you break down. Your life breaks down. Things aren't working out the way you want them to. Maybe your marriage falls apart. A relationship falls apart. You lose your job because of sin. Sin is destructive. It is slavish. Sin is most people's master. But the good news is it doesn't have to be for the Christian. And it doesn't we don't have to live in slavery to sin. And so today, that's what we're going to look at, really. Three steps to getting victory over sin in our lives and walking in the newness of life that Jesus offers. So chapter 6, verse 1. Let's read uh, the first seven verses together. It says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? He says, May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. For he, So that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Right? Is everybody, all right, that's clear as mud, right? There's a lot going on there, but this is such good stuff. I mean, don't you want what he's talking about here? Right? Newness of life. Our body of sin being done away with. Being freed from sin. No longer being slaves to sin. That's, that's only possible for those who are in Christ. And Paul enters into this discussion by way of the last verse of chapter 5, where he made the statement, that for the believer in Christ, remember this, where sin increases, grace increases all the more. Okay, grace for the believer always outpaces our sin. So if we take one step in sin, grace takes two. We take five steps, grace takes six. That is radical grace, isn't it? I mean, even on your worst day, grace has your back. Okay, that is radical grace. It's so radical that some people might actually misinterpret it to mean that we should continue in sin so that we can give God an opportunity to demonstrate His grace. 
right? And so that's the argument that Paul is rebutting here. He's, he's saying that uh, this is not, grace is not a license to sin. It's a license, it's grace frees us from sin, actually. So throughout history, there have always been people, and these people, uh, I was one of them, for, you know, for heaven's sake, I was one of them for a long time, who are nominal in their faith. They're Christian in name. They would say they're a Christian, but they don't actually have Christ. And it's very evident from their lives, right, that, that they, they don't have Christ. So, uh, actually, they tend to treat God's forgiveness or God's grace as a license to sin. So, I just go sin all I want because I'm just going to go confess my sins and I'll get grace for it. Now, that was my, my mentality growing up. It's uh, Actually, Jude 4 warns about false teachers who would make grace a license to sin. Uh, Bible students call this, this theology um, antinomianism or lawlessness. You've probably heard of that once or twice. Uh, one man, W.H. Auden, it was his name, he said, I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. right? So he presumed upon the grace of God. He presumed upon God's grace covering his sin. It was a license to sin for this gentleman, um, Rasputin, an old Russian leader who, uh, whose name means debauched one. He got the name Rasputin, debauched one, because of his theology. He, his name used to be Gregory, I think it was, but he advocated that we should sin to the point of weariness so that God's grace could shine, basically. So that he believed that sinning was necessary for salvation. The more you sin, the more your cure your salvation is because you're getting more and more grace. And that, actually, historians think, that the theology that he had, Rasputin, is what actually led to atheistic communism. Unbelievable. But that's obviously a discussion for another time. Many people today who claim to be Christians treat God's grace like fire insurance. We, we want God's grace to live however we want. Just, you know, just don't make me change my life. You know, like... I'll take the grace for salvation, but not the grace for sanctification, right? So we under, this, many people misunderstand grace as freedom to sin rather than freedom from sin. And to such a false theology, Paul responds with that now, I hope, very familiar saying in verse 2, may it never be. Should we continue in sin so that grace increases? May it never be. May anoint a... That's like the strongest negation in Greek. He's saying no, no, and no, never. That is not my intention here at all. Because why? He says, he follows it up with, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? I mean, live in it. Think of that word, that phrase, live in it. That's denoting a, entailing a, a sinful lifestyle. How should we still live in sin knowing that we've died to it through the work of Christ, our new life he says, in Christ is not to be characterized by sin, but by righteousness. Because we're dead to sin in Christ. And as a new believer, I remember this, this concept being very confusing for me. Maybe it's been confusing for you. And I don't know if we'll ever get our heads wrapped around it completely. But we 
Um, we've been united with Christ through his, in His death and burial and resurrection. And, and while it's difficult to understand, it's incredibly por- important and practical for our sanctification. It's something that we need to get a grip on, at least four fingers on it anyway, um, to live a victorious Christian life. Um, actually, I'm afraid that because many Christians... I'm afraid that many Christians still struggle unnecessarily more than they should because they don't understand their union with Christ and His death and burial and resurrection. And so this, this becomes the first step that I want to talk about today. first step to victory, to walking in the newness of life, is just know your new identity in Christ. Know your union with Christ. If you have a pencil or a pen, circle that word no. I mean, if your conscience allows you to write in your Bible. Um, <laughs> circle that word no in verse 3, 6, and 9. Uh, some of your Bibles, it's going to say, like, I don't want you to be ignorant of or something like that. But it, he's talking about knowledge here. If you want to live victoriously over the sin in your life, you have to know something of what Christ has done for you and who you are now that you're in Christ. You need to know you're united with Him. Victory begins with knowledge. Paul says to be transformed how? By the renewing of your mind, right? He understands learning is the key to living. Living depends on learning. Duty, as a Christian duty, duty depends on on doctrine. Um, This is why Paul, in his letters, he always begins, with the exception of like 2 Timothy, because it's just not the point of that letter, but he begins his letters with doctrine. Have you ever noticed that? First half of Ephesians, first three chapters, is doctrine. This is what Christ has done for you. This is who you are in Christ. And you get to chapter 4, and he switches gears, and he says, all right, let's get into Christian duty. Therefore, because of who you are in Christ, this is how you should then live in Christ. And so our duty is, uh, is built upon on, on clear doctrine. That's Paul's pattern. He understands right, that clear theology about who we are in Christ is critical. It's key to living in Christ. Okay? And, and this is what most of the religious world gets backwards because we want to say, well, hi, you want to come to Christ. Well, you need, to, you need to get your life in order, right? You need to get your duty. You need to walk. You need to live this way. If you just live this way, then this. Then you'll be saved or something like that. We always get it backwards. We... If you want to be a saint, you've got to do what a saint does, right? But what does Scripture say? He calls believers saints. He makes us saints to do what a saint is called to do. But Paul, again, doctrine before duty. And I'm going to share an illustration here that's a bit absurd, but it gets the point across. So let's imagine that uh, when I was a baby, my parents were missionaries in Indonesia. And, and one day, while they're out hiking around in the jungle, there's a, uh, you know, this is where orangutans live, so uh, an orangutan uh, reaches down out of the trees and swoops me up out of my mother's arms, and, and the orangutan runs off with me, and they never find me again. They have search party after search party, they never find me. And so, for several years, let's say, I don't know, nine, ten years, I 
live with the orangutans in Indonesia in the jungle by myself. And uh, so what have I learned the way of? The orangutan, right? So one day, you're, a mission, you're on a mission trip, and you're in Indonesia walking through the jungle trying to reach unreached people, and uh, you notice some orangutans swinging through the trees. And then you notice in the back, there's a funny, scraggly-looking one, right? Pale-skinned one. <laughs> and really struggling to keep up with the rest of the orangutans. Well, it's me, right? And you say, what in the world is this kid doing? Let's go stop him. And so you do. You stop me. And you basically speak with me. You try to rehab me. Because you know that, that I think I'm an orangutan. And so you give me a book, right? Let's pretend I can read it. And it's a book on how to live like a human being. Well, suppose like, I can read it and understand it. Is it going to help me any? Is this book on how to live like a human being going to help me any? Well, no, because I think I'm an orangutan. Right? Why do I want to know how to act like a human if I think I'm an orangutan? I'm not going to be interested. The only way you're going to rehab me is to change my mind. You have to convince me of the fact that I'm a human first. You have to convince me of the truth that I'm a human being. And if you can do that, well, then I'll start to behave like a human being. So, see, my behavior, our behavior, tells everyone the truth about who we think we are. If I know I'm a human being, I'm going to act like one. I'm going to put off the ways of the orangutan. I'm going to put on the ways of the human. Again, I know it's... It's, a, it's absurd, but you get the point. The point is, if as a Christian, you're moping around like Eeyore all the time, thinking, I'm just a no-good, dirty, rotten sinner, well, don't be surprised when you act like one. If you think, this is just as good as it gets, and I'm never going to get control over this besetting sin in my life, don't be surprised if you never have victory over that besetting sin in your life. You need to understand who you are in Christ. That He has given you power through the gospel, having been united with Him spiritually through the work of the Holy Spirit. You have the power now to be free from sin. In a sense, not totally. I'm not saying you're not going to be free from the presence of sin. Obviously, we're in a battle with sin until the day that we die. But you can have victory over sin in your life because of what Christ has done for you. People who do not know that they are saints probably aren't going to act like a saint. If they think they're just, they're hopeless, well, that's the way they're going to live. Listen to this, what one man said. This is why one man said, Christianity is the thinking man's religion. It starts up here. You're transformed by the renewing of your mind. But one man said, um, if Satan can keep a Christian ignorant, then he can keep him impotent, keep him powerless. Satan don't want you in Romans chapter 6 this morning, okay? He doesn't want you to be in the Word of God at all. He wants you ignorant of the Word of God. He wants you a religious person who stays out of the book of God, okay? Because when you come to the Word of God, you realize things you didn't understand until you came to the Word of God. That's why we call it a revelation, okay? It's a gift from God that helps us understand how we're to live, and uh, here's the spiritual reality I'm trying to get across. It's that, it's that we who have believed in Christ have been united with Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. And that word united is important. 
Uh, it's a botanical term. It could have been used as a botanical term as far as tree grafting, like you graft things together. Um, we've been grafted into the death and burial and resurrection of Christ in a spiritual sense through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's why Paul brings up baptism right there in verse 3. We've been baptized. Do you not know all of us have been baptized? All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. And so, um, what baptism are we talking about here? Some people only know think that there's only one, right? Water baptism. So that's where our mind immediately goes. But there's also, the Bible talks about a spirit baptism, right? And so, there, as you can imagine, there's a lot of debate over what baptism is being talked about here. Is he talking about spirit baptism? You know, the inward, invisible spirit baptism, or is he talking about the outward water baptism? Well, I tend to lean towards spirit baptism, but uh, it's like, you know, Paul could just be talking about the whole Christian conversion experience here. Because in the early church days, they associate. I mean, if you, if you believed you were baptized, it was, you know, they were seen as one experience, you know, ideally. And when you get baptized by water, you are, in effect, right, it's symbolic of your spirit baptism. You're dying and being buried and being raised to new life with Christ, right? So a lot of times I think when you read your Bible and, and, and you see this, yeah, I mean, it's just really vague, but um, you see Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10, people believe and then they say, hey, can I get baptized? Okay, because they wanted to do it right away. They wanted to follow Christ. And I think that's ideal, but um, maybe he's talking about both here. We know water baptism doesn't save, but it is an important step in our conversion experience. And we know that Jesus commanded it, right? We're identifying through baptism with his death and burial and resurrection. And I'm excited we got a couple baptisms coming up, it sounds like. But um, we're saying when we get baptized, I'm dead. I died, right? I died with Christ and I have new life in him and I want to follow him. And... uh, I'm going to walk in that newness of life that Jesus offers. It's an important step in our faith journey. But let's look at verse 8 here. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer his master. Death no longer has master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So Paul, again, he goes back to the realities of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection. He says, look, Jesus died. He was raised from the dead, and he's never going to die again. Death no longer has master, is, is no longer his master. It never will be again. And the logic is... Simply put, that since we're united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection too, well, death and sin don't have to be our master either. Because we have that spiritual union with him. We share in what Christ has done. And it impacts even the here and now, our lives here and now, before we get to heaven. Our lives should be changed now. 
The old is dead. You are a new creation in Christ. The new has come. Old things have passed away. Walk in the newness of life. Eeyore. Right? Don't just rejoice. Reflect on what Christ has done for you. That's step number two. He says, reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Reckon. Reckon. Some of your translations might say something else like... uh, I don't know what it is. Count, count yourselves dead. Uh, consider yourselves dead. Reckon yourselves dead. Um, reckon, I reckon. In, in English, I reckon is kind of like a, it's kind of like guesswork. You know, it's kind of, I reckon it's going to rain this afternoon. Or I reckon that because the Huskers have a five-star quarterback, they're going to be really good this year and they're going to win the Big Ten championship. Right? I reckon, but I'm not very confident, okay? <laughs> I love having a five-star quarterback, but I ain't making no, I ain't putting any money on it, okay? Um, it's just been two decades since we've been any good, so. Yeah, it shows how, how much faith I have, right, in the Huskers. But in Romans, reckon is a word of faith, Reckon is a word of belief. It's confident. It has a sense of confidence with it. To consider or to reckon something is to think about something and take a hold of it. You know what I mean? Like you're going to grasp this concept mentally. You're not just going to gloss over it. You're going to take it and you're going to internalize it. You're going to work it into your heart. You're going to work it into your mind. And in the Greek, it's a continuous present tense. And so this is something that we should keep on doing. We should keep on considering our union with Christ. Keep on considering ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Uh, Keep on considering that we're not the same people we used to be before Christ. Keep on considering that. So, it's, it's, it's really powerful when you think about it. It's really simple. Here's the gospel. Here's who I am in Christ. I need to take that and I need to internalize it. I need to remember I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to God in Christ. And this, ain't, this isn't a game of pretending. This is what God has done for us, Right? I'm not just pretending I'm someone I'm not. This isn't make-believe. We're to consider what God has, in fact, done for us. Now, one man said, if we fail to believe that sin no longer dominates us, we will be much more vulnerable to yield to temptation, to practice sin, and to fear death. However, if we count on sin not having that power, we will be more apt to resist temptation, to stay clear of sin, and to anticipate death less fearfully. Does that make sense? Maybe you'll have to read that again later. But another said that holiness of life, righteousness, right? That's what we're talking about, righteous living. Holiness of life can be stifled if we fail to continually appropriate and put to work the new life that God has given us. So I don't understand I have victory over sin, this freedom and sin in Christ. Why would I ever have freedom over it? Why would I ever have victory over it? You know, so we need to continually contemplate this in the sin battle. And it sounds really simple, 
But this is where people stop. This is where people check out, I think, because this is where it gets hard, actually. It sounds simple, but it's hard work. This is where people quit. They don't want to go here because it takes time to reflect, doesn't it? It takes intentionality in my thinking to think about the realities of the gospel and what it means for my life to sit and contemplate my relationship with God. I think most of us, I mean, myself included, it's, it's hard to slow down. It's really hard to slow down. When I go on a walk, do I want to sit and contemplate the realities of the gospel all the time? Or do I want to just put on earphones, headphones, and check out? Listen to a podcast that means nothing, right? I can, you know, I want to watch Seinfeld, a show about nothing. And that's my therapy. Because it's scary when I think about what's actually going on in my heart and mind. And I can't stand the silence because it makes me think about there's something more, that I need a relationship with God. Something's not right in my life. I don't want to deal with it. And so I check out. I put on the headphones. I hurry. I have a busy life, so I don't have to stop and slow down and think about it. You know what I mean? This is the hard work of contemplation, considering, reckoning. Uh, When we're tempted to sin, we need to think, okay, I'm tempted to do this, but here's what the Bible says. I'm not that guy anymore. That guy is dead. The old me, he's dead. I'm dead to that. It's not going to glorify God, and I'm alive to God in Christ, and I have everything I need for life and godliness. Right? 1 Corinthians 10, 31, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But in, when you are tempted, he'll provide a way out. He'll provide a way of escape so you can bear up under it. Memorize verses like that to contemplate when you're going through temptation. Um, This is prevention counseling, right? Like prevention, right? Not correction. You can use it in correction, like, oh, I shouldn't have done that because I'm dead to that. But when you're being tempted, I'm dead to this. That's not me. That's not who I am in Christ. I'm not going to go there. Um, I can tell you about uh, two college girls I, I read about who understood this point. After they got saved, they, they got an invite to a party, a uh, wild party on campus, right? And before Christ, boy, they would have accepted the invite any day, and they would have been there. They would have been the life of the party, the center of the party. But now that they came to Christ and they began to taste abundant life in Christ, uh, they replied to the invitation with, I'm sorry we can't come because we are dead now. I'm sorry we can't come because we've died. And people go, what? But they understood the old has passed away, the new has come. They have a new calling, and that's righteousness. Okay. One of my Christian counselors, a uh, Christian counselor I know who discipled me a lot, uh, the orangutan illustration was his. But uh, he also told me that um, he's been in the counseling ministry for years. He says, whenever I, I encounter a, a Christian comes into my office and, and they're struggling with a certain sin, right? <laughs> my, they're struggling, okay? They're struggling with sin. He says, the, the first thing I do is I don't just lay down the law, right? I don't give them a lecture on, okay, this is what you're doing. This is what, 
you shouldn't be doing. Here's what you should be doing. He actually will go back to their union with Christ. Know who you are in Christ. Now consider what it means for your life. When he sees a Christian struggling in sin, instead of just condemning them, right? Here's what he does. He says, he's, he says I like to picture a neon sign above their head that says, Help, I'm deceived. I don't know who I am in Christ. Because a lot of Christians are struggling because they don't know who they are in Christ. They've been trying to live this Christian life in their own power, in their own strength. And the spiritual realities of what has taken place just isn't even in their framework. So they need to learn to rely on His power. But, uh, so first, let's, let's know. Second, let's reckon. And third, let's present or let's yield our lives to God for his use. Let's offer ourselves, let's give ourselves to God for his use. That's uh, the word you want to circle in verse 13 this time. Present, yield, offer, give, maybe surrender. Surrender your life to God. He says in verse 12, Therefore don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. and Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. There it is, the word present. Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members of your body as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. We'll talk more about what that last part means in chapter 7. But... Because of who we are in Christ, Paul calls on believers to present themselves to God in a decisive act of self-dedication. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. We aren't to go on yielding to sin. We're to yield to righteousness. (laughs) And it's amazing that we even can. Because of who we are in Christ, we now have the freedom to do that. Before we're in Christ as unbelievers, we have no power to do this. We're, you know, it's interesting. There's a lot of unsaved people who think that they are not a slave to sin. They think that they're free. In reality, they're slaves to sin. And the Christian, he might think that he's a slave to sin, but in reality, Christ says, you're free. Peter's words, he says, the born-again Christian has everything he needs for life and godliness because we have been made partakers of the divine nature, the Spirit of God. And the reason for that is, the reason God has united us with Christ is so that our old body of sin would be done away with. Right? We're putting off Adam. We're putting on Christ and His righteousness. We're always going to struggle with sin in life. There's always going to be that battle. Until the day we die or Christ comes to get us. But we can still say no to sin. Sin is no longer our master. It doesn't have to be. We don't have to answer to the masters of immorality. Is immorality your master? Is greed your master? Anger your master? Sloth? Envy? Lust? These are horrible masters. They ruin our lives. They ruin our relationships. They don't have to be our masters. I like to think of the Christian 
as a sailor on a ship. Christian life. So the Christian is a sailor on a ship, and the old captain of sin is tied up to the mast. You know what I mean? Like he's been bound, he's, he's tied up to the mast of the ship, and he can, he can yell out at us, he can bark orders, he can make fun of us, you know, deride us, taunt us, mock us, and try to get us to do his will. That's the old man, the old captain. But do we have to listen to him? No, because Christ is the new captain. We don't have to listen to the old captain. He can't really even do anything. But the point is, Christ is the new captain of the ship. We listen to him. We use our bodies for righteousness now. And that brings God glory. Paul says, instead of using the members of our bodies as tools or weapons or instruments with which to sin, he says, use them to do God's will in righteousness. You ever thought about this? You're your body parts as instruments with which to glorify God. Tools and weapons. See, I can use my hand for good or I can use it for evil, right? I can knock a guy's lights out, right? Man, I'm not that strong, right? But I can push someone down with my hand. This can be an instrument for evil or sin, or I can use this hand to pull somebody up who's struggling. Yeah, I can use... My mouth right now, sorry, I got loud. Um, I can use my mouth to curse. Or I can use it to bless somebody and share the gospel. It's an instrument that can, I can glorify God with. I can use my feet to go someplace I know I shouldn't go. A place where I'm just going to be tempted and I know I shouldn't go there because I struggle with it, right? Or I can use my feet to take a pie over to my neighbor's house, uh, you know, my neighbor who just had surgery, and just to see how they're doing. You see, so we can use our, 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 our body to do good or to do evil. And that's the challenging application from Scripture this morning. That in light of what Christ has done for you, having empowered you, that you would yield your life to him? Would you yield your life to him this morning? It's not enough to know. It's not enough to consider. You have to take this theology and you have to put it into practice in your life. And that's the challenge that Paul is getting us to. You have to surrender your life to him and say, Lord, I'm yours. Lord, take my hands, take my feet, take my mouth, take my mind, and use it for your glory. Use me to bring you glory. Perhaps you're one of the many. I mean, you've said no to sin. But have you said yes to the Lord? Yes, Lord, you can have me. Yes, Lord, you can have my life. Show me how you can use me in my home, in my church, in my community, and in my world. Because there comes a time when we all must present everything that we are to God. 
And I'm afraid that a lot of people are going to die having never done that. They never said, Lord, I'm yours. Because they were too busy to stop and reckon and present themselves to God. And it'll be the biggest mistake you'll ever make. So, I guess as the worship team plays, I want to invite you to cry out to the Lord in your heart, right? Right here, right now, this morning. Just give your life to God. Some of you guys are going to do it for the first time. Some of you guys are going to have thoughts of rededication. Like, I know I did that, but I've gotten off track. It's time to get back on track and give my life to Him. I'm done being the, the serving the tyrant of sin. I want to serve my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to walk in the newness of life that He offers, that He has given me. So let's take a moment this morning just to reflect and do business with God in our hearts. Let's do that now. we come before you this morning some of us for the first time some of us with thoughts of rededication but we come just seeking you seeking your face seeking your will for our lives we surrender our lives to you this morning right here and right now we choose to be your instruments your tool of righteousness in this world. Lord, we understand that you didn't come to this world to just so that we could have our position changed before you, but so that you would change our lives. And I pray that you would change our lives and you continue to do so over the course of our lives. Lord, don't let us be those who would presume upon the grace of God. That's easy to do going through life without seriously contemplating what the gospel means for us and how we are to yield our lives to you. We're, not to know, we're no longer to live for ourselves, but we're to live for God, the one who died for us and set us free. So I just pray you help us to grasp the glory of this life-changing grace and experience victory over sin, that we might bear fruit for you and glorify you with our lives. I thank you for the work of your grace this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here, I find my rest, and without you.
Oh God, how I need. 